0: just say that I love the dartboard? I mean, I've already kind of talked about that and I love its inclusion, but I just think the dartboard kind of fits with Deep Space Nine, you know? That's slightly more... I hate to use the word grittier. Um, slightly more worn-down, realistic, ground-level kind of thing. Just kind of fits that, you know? Funnily enough, this episode was actually posited a lot earlier than it actually came out, although I suppose that's fairly normal for television, as I've talked about it several times. But originally is going to be Nausicaans instead of Romulans, and Odo instead of O'Brien. Now, what's funny is both of these were changed for completely opposite reasons. They decided to use o- uh, O'Brien instead of Odo because they had overused Odo recently, and they decided to use the Romulans instead of Nausicaans because they had underused the Nausicaans. Which I just find strange. But I will admit, in both cases, I am actually in favor of the changes. O'Brien's amazing. The actor who plays O'Brien is amazing, and he's got a wonderful relatability to him. I mean, who better to have jumping through time than someone who, in his own words, hates temporal mechanics, but is also smart and adaptable enough to be able to ad- deal with the situation on the fly like he does. I also have to give special praise to the way they sh- construct the mystery, because for the most part, the mystery makes perfect sense, and is the kind of thing that just kind of keeps you guessing. With one notable exception I'll bring up later. They even have the classic red herring in the form of the Klingons, who, ironically enough, thanks to the events of this episode, might have actually been able to deal with the Romulan threat before the Romulans decided to come after us. Just pointing that out. So, my notes are kind of all over the place, because there's two kind of threads going through this episode, and both of them kind of bounce off of each other. So, forgive me as I kind of bounce between these. But first, I want to mention how, during the initial briefings, they say, we want all the intel from Odo on how the Dominion's military operations are working. And they say, well, but Odo's not a founder. Well, but he's a changeling. Yes, but he's not a founder. And they just can't seem to understand that concept. Which is hysterical to me, because being a species and being an organization are two wildly conflicting different things, right? And then I started thinking about that, and then I started realizing that how often has Star Trek treated a race as a country? And to so that's kind of the out-of-character perspective, but if we were to move shift this to in-character, how often is it that you see a Romulan who is not a Romulan? So it actually makes a strange degree of sense that the Romulans would presume this kind of thing from other races, Except at the same time, they know for a fact that doesn't apply to all other races, so... It's the kind of thing that could be made to make sense, but ultimately I feel it was just there to kind of show how obstinate the Romulans are being. They're basically very rude and treat the entire ordeal as if this is an interrogation. If anything, I'm actually a little astonished that they bothered at all. But then again, given their ultimate plan, which they probably had long before they even showed up here, what I imagine was true was they wanted to, uh, let's call it strip-mine every detail, every scrap of information that they could pull from Deep Space Nine and Define and otherwise before they decided to go ahead and blow everything up, for, for precaution's sake. Because, well, because that actually makes a strangely large amount of sense. <laughs> I mean, I know that sounds horrible, But put yourself into the, you know, into the mindset of a foreign nation. Now, one of your not-allies currently has possession of a strategic outpost that is directly at a a complete bottleneck for a major, definitely enemy power, which is overwhelmingly dangerous and threatening and all that fun stuff. Apparently even more threatening than the Borg, according to the Romulans, but anyways. And the plan certainly makes a lot more sense. We'll sacrifice that outpost we'll have at least a little bit of plausible deniability. But if the Federation calls us to task, then we'll deal with the Federation, which we can deal with. And the Klingons, which we can deal with. We can't deal with the Dominion. So, the idea of being willing to go this far for this stake, even assuming this means war with the Federation, makes sense because it chops off the possibility of war with the Dominion. Which is funny because, spoiler, the Romulans are going to have a very similar attitude much further into the future. Anywho, <clears throat> now, uh, there is a flip side, and I mentioned this in my notes here. Why, do the Star- why does Starfleet have so little intel on the, Romu- uh, on the Dominion? Sorry, on the Romulans they have plenty of intel. They even know how their warp drives work, which makes something else later make less sense. But anyways, why do they have so little intel to offer? They should be offering them everything they know about the Dominion. Now, I know that the Federation doesn't actually know all that much about the Dominion, but they act as if they know nothing. The way the episode is framed is as if Bob, i will just say you know, Cisco, Cisco decides to take out a loan. And he's like, don't worry, I got this, I got this. And then the loan sharks come and they're like, hey, so we need you to pay us back for the loan you took. And Cisco's like, okay. And then gives him like five bucks instead of the 10,000 or whatever that he owes. And they're like, but we, we gave you 10,000. You need to give us 10,000 change back. And he's like, oh, well, this, this is what I got. It's just strangely framed in the way they talk and the way the, the camera shots are shown and the way the sequence of events happens. It's very unusual. And it's probably part of the reason why they decided to have the whole personally invasive scene with Kira to try and make it clear that, no, 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 the Romulans are in the wrong here, even though up until that scene I would, I would easily and without hesitation say, the Federation is in the wrong here. Cisco has a line about, oh, where I'm going to have to clear giving you, you know, report information with Starfleet. Why has that not already been cleared? I know, I know, the Federation loves their bureaucracy. But given that that is part of their arrangement with the Romulans, and an arrangement that both the Romulans... Well, okay. That the Federation values greatly, why hasn't this been pre-cleared? You are the official representatives of the Romulan military and or intelligence. We are giving, turning over all data about the Dominion to you. Why does this not... Whatever, whatever. So... Uh, I do have to mention, though, one little quick thing about the invasive Kira scene. Kira gets really upset in that scene, which I find funny. Uh, I will give the episode exactly one credit. As I've said before, the Kira-Odo relationship thing has never worked for me. But there's one scene where both Kira and Odo get basically mutually upset about the accusation of there being a thing between the two of them. I actually liked that. As weird as that may sound, because both actors managed to make it sound like that type of thing about yourself that you don't want to acknowledge is true. And I bet a lot of you know what I'm talking about there. I know I do. I uh, I secretly... I know this is going to sound like a shock. I, I actually enjoy Star Trek Enterprise! Anyways, um, <clears throat> but in all seriousness, you know what I'm talking about. I'm sure you do. There's no need to get all personal here. And I like the way that both actors managed to nail that in their own particular uh, idioms. But anyways. But I do also like how Kira gets really upset at the implication that she abandoned the Defiant. like Because the idea of abandoning her post and, and you know failing in her duty is the kind of thing that would really piss Kira off. And it does! What a shock. <sighs> There's this one little bit where Oda says, I always investigate Quark. Now I liked that, as weird as that may sound. Because... On the one hand, well it, obviously he just hates Quark and he's just going after No get... no 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 no. Quark is the kind of person who has his fingers in every pot as pretty much his normal operating standard. Even Quark is the kind of person who tries to gather as much information as he can about everything just in case it's useful. And this has been shown consistently for the past several seasons. So the idea that, you know, I always investigate Quark is is actually makes total sense because it's basically Odo is effectively treating Quark like another intel source. Because he is. It's just just wonderful. In fact, it's almost sad because I wouldn't be surprised at all if Odo had a, let's call it a slush fund, that he could use, that's actually the wrong term, Um, like a petty cash kind of a thing, which he could burn situationally on Quark so that Quark could officially get more information for Odo. I would I would imagine that Cork would be more willing to do that. The only catch, of course, would be you'd have to rely on Cork giving legitimate intel rather than keeping some intel onto the side. Hence, why the investigation thing. So I kind of get it, but it would be interesting to see that kind of a dynamic open up, Cork being the official, unofficial investigator. But anyways, there's an interesting internal political situation here, which is basically untouched. So the Federation of the Klan are, are allies, right? Have been for a long time at this point in history. Uh, Nine to about twenty years, I want to say something like that. I forget the exact numbers. Please forgive me. I looked it up when I was looking up information for last inter- uh, yesterday's Enterprise. But we've been allies for a while, and the Romulans we have not been allies. In fact, we've actually never been allied with the Romulans. We have been at war with the Romulans, and we have had legitimately hostile situations with host- Romulans many times but we've never actually been close to them. And in fact, the Romulans have been trying to provoke us into war or in trying to destabilize our situation many times. So we are in the position here on Deep Space Nine of having to detain Klingons in order to to salvage the Romulan situation. But that makes a strange amount of sense. Because as much as we don't want to piss off our allies... We don't want the Romulans to be enemies anymore, so taking this additional step of saying, we're willing to be on your side even in the face of our own allies helps to, you know, create bridges, basically, try to show through action how much strength we're willing to put into our attempt, our endeavors, in order to strengthen ties between the Federation and the Romulans. It's a nice little touch, and it's barely covered. I do have to say, though, that Odo's handling of the Klingons was actually wonderful. Don't worry, I'll tell your intelligence friends about this. Oh, but, uh, of course, if they'll probably be very upset at the failure of you and your house. But if you were to be, you know, if you were to cooperate, I might not have to inform your intelligence friends about this. I really like that. As I've said many, many times, Klingons are very much about how you react to things and how you do things so more than what you actually say. And the fact that Odo is so willing to basically functionally stand right up nose-to-nose nose with the Klingon and say, yeah, no, kind of showcases how much uh, the Klingons would respect that and then would be willing to cooperate. Now, they never actually follow through on that because it, the plot shifts completely to the Romulan side of things. But I to think the Klingons played ball after that one. Anywho, uh, I mentioned the dartboard. They did some good stuff with the dartboard. They did some stuff later with this as well, but the dartboard was a wonderful visual storytelling tool because, and and this is actually mentioned uh, by one of the producers, or one of the directors, I can't actually remember which. I've got the book right over there. Um, The dartboard was visual shorthand for showcasing exactly how the time jumps happen. You start at point A, You shift to point B and then you go back to exactly point A. Now that's important. Establishing that is something that the audience needs to know. And establishing that without saying, you return to the exact moment in time that you left, and and expositing is a good thing. The dartboard is the perfect visual medium because he throws the dart, shift, shift back, dart hits. That was brilliant, legitimately. And it's actually a damn shame because this episode's very dry. I haven't really talked about whether I like this episode or not. And ultimately, as much as I like O'Brien and I like what they do with this, um, this episode is not what I would call a good episode. I would call it below average if I were to do such a rating system. The time travel stuff is as tiny, wimey as Star Trek gets. It's actually kind of ludicrous and only makes sense if you are presuming a very specific formation of Type Three time travel, which is multiple-dimensional time travel. Uh, which, admittedly, Star Trek does, although Star Trek likes to flip back and forth, back and forth between Type 1 and Type 2 and Type 3, so whatever. <laughs> but getting back to the point, I'm not even going to cover that because there are so many issues with the time travel thing. that I, I could just spend another hour sitting here nitpicking it and discussing why it doesn't work, and frankly, neither of us wants to do that. <laughs> you don't want to hear me, and I don't want to do it. But the other uh, major issue with the episode is that it spends too much time expositing there's a, I actually wrote down a note here, it just says dry technobabble. There's a lot of scenes where people just kind of spout nonsense at each other, and nothing really moves forward, and nothing really happens. Now, I understand the need to, to, to give some kind of explanation for events. I get that. This is Star Trek, and we don't want just, it's time travel, right? But at the same time, there are ways to, to weave that into narrative a little bit better than basically pausing all the action, having the characters yammer at each other, and then getting back to the action. And it's worth noting that I'm not one of those people who insists that my Star Trek be all action or all character. You know, I've, there's room for both. But I feel like this could have been hammered out a lot more smoothly. Uh, there's actually... So in addition to the original script, there were two people who had hands on this one. Ronald D. Moore was one of them. You can feel his influence because anytime you feel something uh, that kind of feels classic Trekkie, in a good and a bad way, you can tell Ronald D. Moore has had his fingerprints on it because he's a big old Trek fan, so, you know... And um, the, I can't even remember the name of the other gentleman, but there's another gentleman who also had to do a, a rewrite on this one and uh, that was called to by R. Stephen Barron. Apparently that was not a particularly pleasant experience either. And it kind of shows. This feels like a chunk of metal that was hammered and hammered and hammered and hammered. And it kind of looks like a sword. <laughs> it's, got, it's got bumps and bit, bits, and there's this one hook right there that's going to, you you're going to gash yourself if you grab it at that angle, right? It's not an actually bad episode, but it has these flaws in its construction, in in, in the flow of it. I will give them, however, tremendous praise for one thing. They decided to go with composite shots instead of green screen shots. Now, I'm going to explain what I mean by that very briefly. This is a green screen shot. I have a green screen right here. I'm, I'm actually touching it. I know you can't see it, but that's the point. I have a green screen behind me. And a green screen can work, and there's a lot of ways to do a green screen. Now, I actually have a fairly decent lighting setup here. Uh, which I've been building up and and studying and working with over the years to try and get better and better and better about it. But you can still see, especially if you look closely, you can still see some of that green outline, especially as I'm moving. The faster I move, now you can see it right there, the faster I move, the more obvious the green blur is behind the motion, right? So there are issues with using a green screen. Now, professional studios have access to slightly better tech to smooth out problems like that. But there's always going to be that green screen approach to it. And even more modern stuff doesn't always get across the feeling of it being there rather than it being a green screen. There's a lot of tricks and techniques with that that I'm not going to cover right now to try and make this work. Long story short, there are a lot of issues with a green screen. And usually you only want to use that if it's something you basically can't complete otherwise. Now, a composite shot you can only do under certain circumstances. But... You can, if you do it, it's, it's going to work a lot better in general. In fact, I only noticed one flaw of the composites. It was when uh, future O'Brien was talking to dying O'Brien, and future O'Brien's head was literally looking in the wrong direction. He was looking, like, over here. But other than that, they did a really good job of the composites, because the way they do a composite is very simple, and they talked about this. Um, the actor who plays O'Brien would come in, and they'd be like, All right, here. Here's your lines, you're playing past O'Brien right now. They'd, and the directors and the writers would keep that clear. And it's on the director to make sure all this is set. And they would set up basically a program for the, excuse me, for the camera. So that it's always going to do the exact same motions, right? So then he would go through his steps, then go through his lines, and go through his motions. Then they'd, then, then, O'Brien would, you know, the guy who plays O'Brien would take a moment and be like, okay. And either ch- and change uniform if necessary, or just take a moment, and steady himself, get some air, you know, switch out. Okay, all right, I'm ready come back in and do the exact same scene as the other O'Brien with the same camera movements, and then you'd composite them together in post. Um, Now, obviously, there are going to be some issues with that, and you can always tell a little bit when a composite shot has been done. But a proper composite shot has the advantage of looking more real, for lack of a better way to put it. It's basically the same general argument in favor of using models instead of CGI. Now, CGI has certainly gotten a lot better in the recent years, but there's always a slightly different visual acuity thing. The the eye, the human eye, will basically always know it's looking at CGI or something real. There's very few exceptions to that. We might eventually get to the point where we can't determine that, but for the past, like, 20, 30 years, that has been true. This is also shown in the, uh, the destruction of the model. This is a great example of what I'm talking about. The, the DS9 destruction, that is a model which they actually strapped explosives to and blew up and then took you know, footage of it in order to show. And you can tell. You can actually tell that there's a physical device that is being destroyed. And Star Trek in general has had a lot of good experience with using models over the years. In fact, uh, one of the first really significant usages of CGI in this very show... Uh, is actually DS9 itself at the very end. But I'm, I'm not going to get into that. That's way later. Point being, it makes it look a little bit more realistic. It makes it look a little bit more believable. And it makes it helps to feel a little bit more like there actually are two O'Briens there in that scene. It's a nice little trick, and it's very well done. And I wanted to give cre- credit where credit is due. So, um... I... <sighs> Time travel? I've just got some notes on the time travel here. I'm really just going to skip through this. Because, honestly, you really don't want me to talk about that. The only thing I want to say about the time travel stuff is there's this undercurrent thread. I don't even know if this was deliberate. But there's like a thematic thread going through the episode of inevitability. Each time O'Brien jumps forward, even though it is demonstrated each time that he is altering history or shifting to another timeline, in each case, things still happen relatively the same way they did previously. The only exception is the destruction of DS9 right at the end. And I have to admit, in my opinion, that's a little bit of a narrative cheat. I know we could argue this back and forth, but... Again, it depends on intent. I'm not sure what the writing intent was on this one. But what I mean by that, and I complained about this over on Babylon 5 as well. What I mean by that is fiction too often has the, has the approach of... Here's a vision of doom in the future. Here's a vision of doom in the future. Here's a vision of doom in the future. Doom averted right? Like that same general pattern. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. I'm sure you can think of other examples of that. And I tend to dislike that. I prefer a slightly more complex or nuanced thing where here's a vision of Doom of the future. Here's a vision of Doom of the future. Doom happens, then we deal with it. Time Zero over in TNG is actually an excellent example of using Doom in the future vision, which then happens, and then they accommodate properly. That was very clever in my opinion. And, and requires a more complex, and, and more work, and more time, and more effort, and blah, blah, blah. So I get that you can always do that. But when you have, like, every single prediction come true, except the big one, it's like, really? Moving on. <clears throat> so they have the radiation triggering the jumps. Uh, Cork wanting to use the Dabo table. That's amusing. I like how O'Brien takes all this in stride, by the way. Of course he does. He's a Starfleet veteran at this point in time. I mean, he, he just, oh, as of this point in, in history, O'Brien has been in Starfleet for longer than I've been doing this show. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's got some chops. He's, he's, he's seen this stuff before. It's cool. you got to expect the weird. I understand. Even Janeway said that to uh, Harry, I want to say. Um, and I love... There's So I, I've, I've kind of crapped on the time travel thing, but I want to give massive praise to one aspect of the time travel, and that would be O'Brien shows up in the infirmary. And then he looks down in his own corpse. And then Bashir walks in and says, Oh, am I so glad to see you. That was awesome. That was a well-constructed scene that made sense. It was built up to, you know, Bashir is smart. You're ignoring other stuff. Bashir is smart and has ar- is already well aware of the situation. They didn't approach this like it was a Cassandra truth. You know, he was open about the time travel thing from the very beginning. And they determined he was actually time traveling from the very beginning. And Bashir, of course, seeing him, was like, Oh, Like, you just feel that palpable relief. You're going to live. Oh, thank God, my friend is going to live. And then it kind of gets a little awkward, which is great. Because good friends tend to be awkward. I've said it before and I've said it again, the friendship between these two is amazing and I love it. Anyways, um, so then Odo handles the Klingons. Uh, I do like Odo's investigation of the, the Klingon transporter slash replicator situation. I know that sounds like a strange thing to comment on, but not only does it show Oda's investigative chops, but it also kind of helps to show how he likes to show his work. Basically, the pride he takes in his own job. And I just thought that was a nice little character moment. I just wanted to comment on it really quick. So then they find out there's a singularity orbiting the station. Now, funnily enough, it has always bothered me that they never really were like, there's Romulans on the station. And there's a singularity orbiting the station. I mean, that that just sounds like a two-and-two two situation to me. Remember, at this point in time, we already know that the Romulans use quantum singularities as warp cores. And, in fact, O'Brien knew that like that. So at least one person in character on the station already knew about the nature of Romulan warp cores. So... Why did no one put two and two together earlier? It's, it's a little bit frustrating. But I mentioned it's funny because that's always bothered me. And when I was doing research for this particular episode, it turns out that it bothered some of the people who worked on it, too. Go figure. Anyways. Oh, also, really quick. There's a scene where Bashir uses a Romulan warbird nacelle to, to work on O'Brien. Now, I say it that way. It's a prop. I understand, you know, guerrilla science, you know, having to make do with what they have is basically what Star Trek has always had to do. But it's funny to me because it was such an obvious and automatic thing for me because I had a Dideradex model back in the day. I don't anymore. Unfortunately, it was destroyed in one of the moves, which I'm still upset about. And I want to replace it someday when I have, you know, space to put things that are purely cosmetic. But, <laughs> but speaking as a kid who had a Dideradex Warbird model and who loved that model, I guess I was a, like in a 20s at this point. But you get my point. I, I was still a kid in my 20s. I think most of us were. Um, I recognized it immediately. It was just, that's a Warbird nacelle. (laughs) It was so obvious. They even do a close-up of it just to make sure. I I wonder if they had that close-up shot just as like a a wing to the camera. Like, yeah, here you go. Um, So then the Warbird attacks. Now, my first note about the Warbird attacking was, really? I kind of already talked about this, but I'd only mention that because they're playing a very dangerous game here. They're also presuming... Something that may or may not... So let me put it to you in a slightly different way. The Dominion is a threat. I think we can all agree with that. And the Romulans are are presented as if they presume this threat to be a significant enough threat to risk war with the the Klingons and the Federation. Okay, I'm with all this so far. So, question. Based on all of this, why are they willing to shut down the wormhole? Now I know what you're thinking. Well, because... Because there's a dog barking. Because the Dominion is way over there. But the problem is, this is such a short-term solution. The wormhole is the ultimate choke point. If the Dominion want to have military intervention in your area now, they have to go through the wormhole. Wouldn't it not be more strategically viable to try and use the wormhole in order to as, as a basically as a weapon, as geographic terrain, and using their advantages against the Dominion? Because if the Dominion wanted to do anything, with them, they have doing anything with them now. They have to go through the wormhole by destroying the wormhole. That advantage goes away, which means for the next seventy or so years we're cool, and then that Dominion fleet's going to show up. And you know it is, the Dominion is more than patient enough to do something like that. I bring that up. Because at first I was using, saying this as a criticism, but then I realized that's extremely Romulan, isn't it? Uh, as I have talked about you know, uh, in the past, and as I will talk about when we start discussing more about the Romulans in TNG, uh, they are heavily internally political to the point of basically being a late, Romul- uh, it's late Romulan, wow, late Roman Republic kind of a problem, right? For those of you who... Uh, I'm, I'm describing this so terribly, so let me try this again. They're crap. <laughs> they make decisions based on the wills of individuals, not on the, in, the will of the state, which is funny because they do have a bit of a Gestapo thing going on, or Gestapo if you prefer. But despite all that, it would make perfect sense to me that the senators who are basically in charge of the Romulan uh, Empire, Romulan Star Empire, were the kind of people who'd be like, yeah, we should shut this down. It'll, it'll ensure prosperity in our time. Our kids will be screwed, but screw them. Now, they might not literally say that, but I could actually see that kind of argument being postulated. Indeed, I could also see the kind of argument along the lines of, well, you know, that'll be tomorrow's problem. We will have developed new weapons and technology by the time the Dominion shows up. We'll be ready for them. Ignoring the fact that if the Dominion were were patient enough and interested enough in coming after them, would be able to come after them from basically any direction in any way in any number of forces. So, again, the terrain advantage being gone completely all, the, all you're facing now is the Dominion at whatever strength they decided to send. And again, how much they cared would determine that strength. I imagine it would be quite a bit. Anywho. <clears throat> uh, I guess that's actually it. Although I do want to mention one last thing very quickly. So the O'Brien swap... I decided I don't want to really discuss that for the same reason I don't don't want to discuss the time travel because it's very clear based on why they're showing this that this is a form of type 3 time travel. This is a different O'Brien, a different timelines O'Brien. He doesn't have the radiation damage, even though he should. You know, he doesn't. None of that is there. He's he's like, okay, yep, right. He goes back. So it is in basically every way a different O'Brien that we see. And our O'Brien dies. (laughs) Which is kind of messed up when you think about it. But is also very O'Brien. I have absolutely no doubt that our O'Brien, hell, any O'Brien, actually, would be more than willing to lay down his life in, in, in sake of a cause that he thought was interesting or worthwhile or whatever. And, of course, then his willingness to... (laughs) the other his willingness to go back and basically abandon his life in exchange for this one would also make sense. However, it's probably worth noting that I don't think either O'Brien has enough of a grasp of temporal mechanics to understand the significance or severity of the sacrifice that both of them are making, but I still think they would both make it if they knew, willingly and knowingly. Oh, one more thing, Quark. (laughs) Dabo I'll see you next time, guys.